Thank you, Nikki and Mackenzie, uh, for leading in worship. Um, Risen Hope, would you pray with me as we uh, begin uh, by opening John uh, 3 in God's Word? Heavenly Father, what we need right now is your Holy Spirit to come. Uh, normally, we would be gathered together, and it's been a while since we've had that. Uh, but we know that you are able to transcend geography. You are able to transcend locations. You are able to transcend even the dramatic differences in our lives right now, the struggles that we're going through and everything we're facing individually and as uh, just the church. And so I pray right now, Father, that your spirit would come. Come to where we're hearing this message. Come to where we're worshiping you, wherever that might be, and that you would open our eyes to see what Nicodemus could not see, to hear and feel and understand and embrace what Nicodemus couldn't in this text. I pray that your name would be magnified, that we would receive with faith everything that you have for us, and that you would help us as brothers and sisters in Christ to pursue in every conversation, in every avenue that we are, are given in our lives to pursue the exaltation of Christ Jesus in the proclamation of the gospel of of God's word and, and the cross and all that it means, Father God, that we're going to see today. I pray that you'd help us embrace it with such joy that it is part of our normal, everyday conversations, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. John 3, uh, verse 1 begins like this. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God was with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again? How can he be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. To which Nicodemus in, what is it, verse uh, 9, responds to Jesus by asking a question, how can these things be? That's Nicodemus's question to Jesus after all that he said about being born of the Spirit. And today, we're going to see Jesus's answer. Jesus's answer will probably take us in the next week or two or three, um, but we want to look at the very beginning of it, the very first verse of his answer. And um, <clears throat> this question that Nicodemus is asking, it, it comes on the heels of this Pharisee, Nicodemus, uh, a man who had devoted his entire life to rule following and, and law keeping. He's told that entrance into God's kingdom is not something that he can acquire because of where he was born or his pedigree of theology or any of those things. What has to happen in a person's life is they need to be born 
of God. They need to be born of the Spirit, this thing that Jesus refers to, this experience of being born again. It's called in theological circles the new birth. It's what happens to create a Christian. In fact, it's the fountainhead of everything in the Christian's life. It, it is the very beginning of our experience of faith and knowing God and trusting him and believing him and loving him. And Jesus is saying that this reality of being born again must happen in the heart of a human being for them to love God, for them to, 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 to treasure God and treasure Jesus, for them to enter in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> this has to happen. And Nicodemus is having a hard time to believe this. Um, he's given his entire life, and think about this, he's given his entire life to this external moral conformity to codes, thinking that this is going to get him in the door of God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't work, Nicodemus. There's something more fundamental. There's something that needs to happen in your heart by God's grace alone. God must first cleanse you with the water of regeneration, which we looked at last week. He must grant to you the renewal of the Holy Spirit before you can even think about seeing the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, of course, responds with this question, how can these things be? And John 3, verse 10, shows us Jesus' response to him, his, his uh, question. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So make no mistake about it. I mean, you probably get the tone of Jesus's voice in this scene. This is a rebuke to Nicodemus. He's, Jesus is saying, you are the teacher, the master of Israel, yet you don't understand these things, these simple things that I've been telling you, these fundamental things that I've been speaking about. Nicodemus should know these things, according to Jesus. His ignorance here to what Jesus is teaching isn't because Jesus' teaching is novel or because Jesus' teaching is new or strange. It has nothing to do with that. This experience of new birth is, is looked at from different angles throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures especially Ezekiel 36, which we saw last week. Um, God talks about cleansing his people by sprinkling water on them. It's a supernatural experience of forgiveness and grace. And by putting his own spirit in them so that they can obey his commands, so that they would love him and trust him to follow his statutes and his rules. This is the new birth. This is what it looks like to be born again. And so Nicodemus should know this, but he doesn't. And so Jesus is pressing him here in this scene. And he's saying that the testimony of the new birth that Jesus is proclaiming to him right now, and really everything that Jesus has said publicly, none of that is something that he learned or picked up along the way. No human taught Jesus this reality. When Jesus and when his disciples later on, that's the we here, when, when they speak, they speak of what they know firsthand, what they've experienced firsthand. And Jesus speaks from a completely different paradigm, which we'll get to a little bit later. And he's bearing witness with, with what he has seen from his own eyes. This isn't just an opinion. 
This isn't just another idea that humanity is coming up with. This is objective reality. This is truth. <clears throat> and yet, Jesus is saying here, you Nicodemus, and all of the Pharisees are, are probably included in here since the you there is plural, you don't receive my testimony. You don't receive what, we say, what we're saying. You don't actually believe anything that I'm saying right now. Even though Nicodemus at the very beginning admitted that uh, Jesus is a teacher that's come from God. I mean, who could do the signs that you do unless you came from God? Even Nicodemus doesn't receive what Jesus is actually saying. He doesn't receive his testimony. He doesn't believe the words that are, are being spoken by Jesus. Jesus says, if you can't believe even these earthly things, like the earthly experience of being born again, basic fundamental things that need to happen at the beginning of a, a spiritual journey with God, if you can't believe that, how could you possibly believe heavenly realities, heavenly things? If you're stumbling over, I mean, the basic and fundamental need that you have for God to, to make your sinful heart clean and new, through a gracious, unilateral work of the Holy Spirit, if, if that's hard for you to understand, why do you think you'll understand me when I answer your question, how can these things be, when that answer to that question will take you far deeper, far further, far higher than anything I've said so far? What will happen when I show you heavenly things if you can't come to terms with the earthly things that I've already said to you? These are things, when he says heavenly things here, these are things so far beyond even the amazing supernatural experience of the new birth, so far beyond that they are the difference between earthly things and heavenly things. They're the difference between earth and heaven. That's the question. And what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing Nicodemus's ignorance uh, and his desperate need to be born again. Um, Jesus is lovingly and even painfully for Nicodemus revealing Nicodemus's ignorance to these real needs that he has, this need. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then in verse 12, just a few verses before saying that, he tells us the only solution to a natural person accepting and understanding spiritual realities like the new birth. He says in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What this means is that the only way, the only key and solution to Nicodemus's ignorance about the new birth is that he has to experience it firsthand. That's the only way. He cannot understand this reality without actually tasting it. So Nicodemus's blindness to what Jesus is teaching here, the reason why he doesn't understand, is evidence of his own need for this experience. That's what's going on here. Um, Nicodemus has this great need. And it's not just Nicodemus. Every single human being on this planet has this need. In fact, this is their greatest need. There isn't another need that is more significant, more profound 
than to have this encounter with the Spirit of God, being born of the Spirit. And so Nicodemus's question may be intended, when he asked it, to try to get out some sort of rational or logical mechanism for why, uh, the, how the Holy Spirit could do this thing, why it was needed. But Jesus is, is going to answer a far more important question. Underneath Nicodemus's question, how can these things be? Jesus is going to tell him how it is that God can justly offer such radical grace and mercy to sinners who have both betrayed and abandoned this God. That's the real question here. How is that possible? Like, that's the question that should be asked by Nicodemus. How in the world is an infinitely holy, infinitely worthy God provide a, a gift so remarkable as this, the new birth, to sinners who have spent their lives devaluing him or spent their lives ignoring his reality and his grace. Whatever Nicodemus meant by this question, Jesus is going to give him an answer that's going to help him more than what he was looking for. And this means that he's going to be taken into heavenly things. Heavenly things he's going to have a hard time understanding. <clears throat> Jesus is going to take Nicodemus all the way to the source of the new birth. How being born again is a reality for us. Where does it come from? Where did it originate from? How, if it's the only hope for mankind, what had to happen behind the scenes in order for this undeserved, unwarranted, unmerited grace to be ours? So Jesus begins to give that answer in verse 13. Like I said, it may take us a few Sundays to actually go through this. We're going to look at verse 13 today and focus on what Jesus says here. Verse 13, John 3. No one, Jesus says, has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So this is the beginning of the answer. To Nicodemus's question, how can these things be? And this is precisely what Jesus is calling heavenly things. <clears throat> so when he said heavenly things in the, the verse before, he's now taking us into that reality. And we can see that in the direct connection between the, the words heavenly and heaven. Um, this is a heavenly reality, meaning that <clears throat> it deals with the heavenly realm. It deals with God's dwelling place, his presence not man's. It's not an earthly uh, encounter. This is a heavenly reality. This is not an earthly thing. And Jesus is saying, first of all, you need to know, Nicodemus, no human being has ever ascended into heaven. None. No man born on earth has ever tasted that glory, the glory of being in the presence of the living God. That hasn't happened. No one. And we know this is true. Even though in the Old Testament we see different stories of visions where people are taken in the presence of God, they aren't experiencing it like this. And, and even Enoch and Elijah, who are brought up from the earth without dying, they still do not experience what Jesus is talking about here. No one has made their own way up into the presence of the living God. That's Jesus' point. And he's using this to answer Nicodemus's question, how can these things be? And really the question he's, he's answering is, how is it that a man can enter the kingdom of God? How, how does that happen? 
if no one can breach God's presence, if no one can ascend up into heaven, then the implication would be we're without any hope. There's no way that we can get up there. It's impossible. But this is where hope enters into Jesus' statement. He says, except. No one has ascended into heaven except, and that means that there's an exception to this uniform paradigm in reality. And that exception is a person called the Son of Man, the one who descended from heaven. He is the only one who has ever truly been in the presence of God. He alone has been in the heavens. And this Son of, of Man, who Jesus is obviously claiming to be, he's done it in earlier verses, and he'll continue to do that throughout the book of John. This Son of Man uh, is the, 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 the title that, that that represents is something Nicodemus would immediately recognize as connected to Daniel 7. The Son of Man is this Messianic figure, this Messiah, this Savior that appears in Daniel 7. He, he's a man who is who's brought into the presence of the Ancients of Days. And we looked at this a few months back um, in one of the sermons we had during Easter. He's brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And there he is given complete and unending authority over the entire cosmos. There isn't a single square inch in the universe in reality that he is not given authority over. So this means Jesus, as the Son of Man, is not just simply a teacher that's come from God. He's not simply a prophet, even, who's speaking on behalf of God. The Son of Man is the King of everything. There isn't anything outside his authority. And he is dwelt in God's presence from all eternity. In other words, he, he's not simply a man who was born on earth. Nicodemus, when he looks into the face of Jesus, he is looking into the face of God. And we know this because we've read the beginning of this gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the very first verse in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and John's pointing there at his central goal. One of the main things he wants us to understand is that Jesus Christ isn't just a man, and he isn't half deity, half man. He is fully divine. Jesus Christ was with God and was God at the same time. He is God the Son, the Son of God. And he didn't <clears throat> need to ascend in heaven into heaven in order to be in God's presence. He has dwelt there from all eternity um, because he is God. That's where Jesus begins when he answers this question. Nicodemus's question is, how can these things, this new birth experience, how can it be? And Jesus says, no one has the ability to ascend in God's uh, to God's presence except for the one who descended the Son of Man, God's own Son taking human flesh. And this has profound significance, so much significance that later on in this chapter, John's going to return to this same reality and start to unpack it a little bit more. And I want to read that. Verse 31 in John 3, John the author goes into great detail to try to, to articulate why this is so profound that God the Son would enter into human history. Verse 31 says, 
He who comes from above, that's Jesus that he's talking about, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the very words of God. That's Jesus that John is talking about there. And this is profound because it says that clearly that Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's not even just a prophet. He, he is not a normal man. He is, according to this text, above all. He is above all. And he, he bears witness only to what he has seen and heard firsthand. Meaning, he has been in the presence of his Father as God the Son. And so what he sees and what he hears are the words of God. That's who Jesus really is. He is divine. He is God the Son. And so think about this. To not receive the testimony of Jesus while he's on earth or even through the scriptures, to not receive that, to refuse the words of God coming through Jesus is to deny objective reality. It's to deny the truth because it came from God. And this is what is going on with Nicodemus. He doesn't know who he is talking to. Um, he thinks he's staring into the face of a man, uh, a powerful, miracle-working teacher from God, but only a man, and he's wrong. Jesus is from heaven. And that means that he is above all. And as God the Son, he speaks the words of God. And so when he talks, when Jesus is talking, it is God talking. And Jesus is saying here in verse 13, that's who I am. I, I am the Son of Man. I, I am God in the flesh. And the stunning thing about verse 13, this answer that Jesus is giving to Nicodemus' question um, it begins with the necessity of God having to come into this world. Think about that. That's the whole thrust of this verse. That's what he means by using the word descended. In order for there to be any hope for us, for fallen, sinful mankind, we could not simply rise up into the heavens and ascend to be with God. That, that is not possible. In order for there to be any hope, in order for there to be any new birth experience where the Spirit of God comes down and redeems human beings through this experience of being born again, saving them from their destructive, sinful trajectory, someone from heaven had to come down. That's the only way. Someone had to descend from heaven. Someone had to enter into the darkness and the brokenness of our world. What Jesus is saying here is that he did this. The Son of Man descended from heaven. God the Son took on flesh, came down into this world, and he's saying to Nicodemus, this is how things uh, can be. This is how this new birth experience came into existence. God himself had to become man. That's what had to happen here. 
That's the essential thrust of verse 13. And what I want to do is I want to spend just a little time just with that word descended. Um, I think we pass through that word very quickly. And we need to recognize what that means. Uh, because it is too foundational, too important, simply just too huge of a concept for us to just pass through. So I want to take the rest of our time uh, today and just look at this. And we don't have a lot of time, but I want to look at this specific reality, this descending of God through Philippians 2, uh, starting with verse 5. So if you have your scriptures or your, your Bible with you, and I hope you do, Take that, and we're going to close our time together by looking at this uh, word descended as we see it articulated in Philippians 2. Paul is writing to uh, the Philippian church, and uh, in verse 5 he says this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus means. When he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is what he's saying. Paul here is telling the Philippian church, he's inviting them into humility by telling them, think about who Christ is and think about what he did for you. Although he was in the form of God, that is, he himself was God. He was in heaven. He reigned above all. Although that was true about him, he emptied himself and became a man. He emptied himself of his divine right. He emptied himself of his divine privilege. He didn't cease to be God. He was still fully God when he walked on earth. But he, he, he did not count his equality with God a thing that he needed to hold on to and not let go of. He descended in the greatest possible understanding of that word. And that in and of itself is astonishing. Just to think about that act. He didn't need to do that. He could have simply, and he would have done us no wrong, because he didn't owe us anything. He could have simply left us in our unbelief, our, our, our self-imposed sin and rebellion. He could have left us there, but he didn't. And this was the price, this descending, this emptying was the price it cost to give us the new birth. The cost for our washing of regeneration, the cost for the renewal of the spirit, the reality of being born again. All of that cost was this radical emptying of himself. It required him to empty all of his divine right to glory into this small human frail form baby who was born to a couple from Nazareth, a backwater town in the, the Middle East. And he entered into our frailty. He entered into our brokenness. That alone is remarkable about this word descended. That alone is almost unbelievable. If we knew who he really was, we would have a hard time grasping this. But it's more than that. He didn't just come into the world as 
the king of the world, even though that's who he was. He, he came, it says, as a servant. Literally, the word here in Greek is slave. That's what it was like for him, to, to, to be born into the likeness of sinful man. It was like being a slave, uh, being the servant of all mankind as he goes to the cross. And this kind of humility that we're dealing with here is so profound, so deep. And then Paul says, takes it even further by saying the impossible. He says that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. Even, he says, death on a cross. He was beaten, he was scourged, he was humiliated, he was shamed, and he was nailed to a tree outside of Jerusalem, this Roman instrument of torture and execution. <clears throat> That's what happened here. To the one who was in the form of God. This is how the Son of Man descended. This is what he's saying in verse 13 of John 3. This event that we see here in Philippians 2, is the source of the new birth. This is how the new birth came to be. This is how undeserving sinners can experience the glory of being born again. So when Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? Jesus takes him all the way, deep into the heavenly reality of his own descent into humanity, a descent that, that ends at, only at the cross. And so here's what we need to see. God the Son is the only being who could reconcile us to God the Father in the entire universe. There's no one else like him because he is God himself. But in order for him to reconcile us to the Father, he needed to be man. He needed to be a partaker in our own experience and nature. And so he had to come as the Son of Man because no man had ever ascended into heaven, could ever ascend into heaven, except for the one being who has existed from all eternity, the word who became flesh, that one could descend and empty himself in order to accomplish this. The, the death in Philippians 2 that we see here is the only way that you and I could have life. It's the only way. This was the only way that we could be saved from the justice of eternal death. The Son of Man had to descend. He had to go all the way down into the darkest parts of our souls, and then he had to be swallowed up by that darkness and ultimately crushed by the just wrath of his own Father, the justice that was due us rightly for every time that you and I have ignored or dishonored or refused God, who should only be, because of who he is, cherished, honored, regarded as worthy and holy, Jesus had to descend into that, into the depths of our sin, into the depths of God's holy justice against our sin. And yet, and here's the radical thing, it is here in that descending into the cross that we see most clearly the love of God in Christ Jesus. God could have left us in our sin. God did not need to do this. He could have left us to our own selfish desires. He could have left us to our rebellious trajectory. But God so loved us that he descended into our brokenness. And this is the answer to Nicodemus' question. This is what secured the radical interruption 
of our destructive downward spiral into sin. And that means that the new birth wasn't free. The new birth was not free. It was infinitely costly. Us being born of the Spirit, where God cleanses us of our sins and pours out His Holy Spirit on us, on our souls, and makes us new, gives us a heart to love Him and to follow Him and to trust Him. That reality for us cost Jesus His life. Cost Him His own life. In order for Jesus to bring us life, He had to lose His that was the cost of this new birth. And that was the cost of really every breath of faith that you ever take in your life. Every time you trust Jesus, every time you actively pursue him, all of that is rooted in this one reality. Christ descended and went to the cross. Jesus was the cost of the new birth. Jesus was the price for the new birth. And think about that. I mean, think about how worthy and glorious Jesus says he was in the form of God he was equal to God he is God the son and yet his father had to give him up for us he had to divest himself of his right to that glory and that's the cost of our new birth that it is not an overestimation to say that on the cross God gave up everything he had a value in giving us his son to redeem us, he left nothing on the table. He gave it all up because the entire cosmos and every human being who's ever lived and ever will live, all of them added up next to Jesus are a faint echo of his worth. They are a pale shadow compared to how much he is worthy and how much value and glory God had in the presence of his son. And yet Jesus was the price. We measure, you and I measure love by what, what, what some, someone's willing to give in order to, to, to show it, in order uh, for the sake of another person, how much we're willing to sacrifice, like the costliness of that is how we measure love because it's in direct correlation with the, the intensity, the passion, the value of that love. And so consider with me as we close the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I want you to think, personally, just you and God. This is God talking to you. The Son of Man, who is God himself, descended for you. He came all the way down and emptied himself for you so that you could be born of the Spirit, so that you could respond to these words of Jesus by receiving in faith who he is. He went all the way down to the bottom of your sin, and your penalty that was due you for that sin because he loved you. He loved you dearly. And he desires to bring you life. And he desires to bring you up when he ascends into heaven. And he ascended once and he's going to come back and he's going to take us with him. We will do what he has done here because he will do it for us. He went all the way down to the bottom of our sin and its penalty to redeem us. The answer to Nicodemus's question, how can these things be, is that God the Son had to die. He had to descend into the darkness of our sin and perish in order for us to have life. And so, Risen Hope, 
as we partake in communion in the next minute or two, um, and we sing this next song, come to Jesus, knowing and worshiping him because the very love and affection that you feel for him right now in your heart, for all that he's done for you and for who he is, that love wasn't free. He paid with his own blood for you to have that love. 1 John 4, 9 tells us, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, this was the clearest sign of God's love for us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in verse 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to hear from you that this scripture can't just sit on our minds. It can't just sit in our heads. It needs to penetrate into the recesses of our hearts. So I ask that as we worship here, as we partake in the elements, in the next few moments, that you would do such a work on our souls that we would come to see and enjoy what you've given us in the new birth and that we would desire with great eagerness to invite people into the experience by proclaiming them to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that God became a man and died on a cross in order to redeem them. I pray that you would grant us the ability to be so moved by this reality that it would become second nature for us to want people, anybody in our lives, to experience this firsthand. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.